Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. I'm really curious if anyone recognizes this song, and if they do, if they can tell me what movie it's from. The movie is Revenge of the Nerds. So I was watching this show a couple of months ago, and I heard this song, and I love this song, and I thought, I gotta find the guy who did this song. And I did, his name's Scott Wilk. And at the time, he was the lead singer of a band called Bone Symphony. Now, they were actually, we learned in this conversation, hired to do the entire Revenge of the Nerds soundtrack, but it only worked out that they did this song, One Foot in Front of the Other. Prior to that, he had fronted his own sort of post-punk, new wave, power pop band called Scott Wilk and the Walls. Those guys were really good, but he gets a little bit of criticism because his voice sounds exactly like somebody else who was popular around that time. You'll find out later who that is. But anyway... He did some other 80s movies at the time. He worked on Valley Girl and some other things. Uh, after all of that, he went to work as sort of a sideman for Charlie Sexton. And they toured together and performed together for a while. You guys know I love Charlie Sexton. That was pretty much it. And then he went into scoring and kind of corporate mass media music and stuff like that. I really wanted to show some examples of some of the corporate media music that he's done. It's on his SoundCloud page. We put a link to that in the notes here. But unfortunately, we couldn't get clearance for that. But the guy has made a career staying in music just kind of on various you know, fringes of it. We've we featured other people like John Pasden of Off-Broadway and Pez Band that have done similar things. I should say, and I hope, uh, Scott, if you're listening, I, I hope you're okay with me saying this. So when we did this interview, it was a couple of months ago, so it was still kind of warm outside, and I think his wife was having a party. And so she, he went out into the car where it could be quiet, and I think it got hot. And so he drove around, and he needed a drink, and I think he got a little dehydrated, and it seemed like over the course of our conversation, he started to maybe not feel that well. So anyway, I really like conversations like this. As you know, I am obsessed with movie soundtracks from the 80s. So I think this is a good one. I hope you guys do too. He called me from his home in LA. I actually was able to finish the project that I was working on. I actually was working on a piece for Vice. Um, do you oh, watch really? Vice? Yeah. I had a, a my publisher placed a, a, one of my pieces with them um, about a month ago and it aired on this Friday night episode about North Korea. So I'm sitting there watching it, this thing about North Korea and I'm thinking, God, that sounds, that's mine. <laughs> so that, that was really quite, and I had to rewind wow. it to make sure, but it was, yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they, they really don't pay well, but it's just such mm. a privilege to be a part of that because they're so cool. I mean, they do such oh, good yeah. work. The fact that they got into North Korea at all and for the length of time yeah. they got there and were able to film there. Anyway, so um, That's incredible. I did another piece. I got a, they send briefs to my um, publisher and he passes them along to me. And if, you know, if it seems like a good fit, I'll take a crack at it. And this was one of those like needed by, you know, Sunday uh -huh. night kind of things. So. Well, cool. But I'm good now. I, I don't have any time limits. That's a long way of saying I don't really. Oh. <laughs> do you hear well, the Do you hear the engine running? I mean, I got my air conditioning on. I'm no, sitting. I don't. Uh -uh. Yeah. I can tell. I think you're on speakerphone, right? I am. Well, good. Well, so um, okay. So let's kick this off now. Depending on my mood, typically Revenge of the Nerds is my favorite movie of all time. If it's not, <laughs> and I just learned this from your from your website. 
My other favorite movie of all time is Real Genius, which you may have something to do with that one, too. I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But since I'm guessing most people would recognize your Revenge of the Nerds song, can you tell us how this happened? How did you become placed in Revenge of the Nerds? Um, what's the story? Give us all the details. Back in those days, uh, I was in a band on Capitol called Bone Symphony. Mm-hmm. Bone Symphony made an EP. That didn't go very far, but we had a one single that was released in Europe and here, and it did pretty well in Europe called uh, It's a Jungle Out There. Capital. Um, I have a lot of good feelings about my time with those two guys, one of whom was from Iceland, and we got to go to Iceland and write and make videos for a while, and that was it was a fun band. His name was Jakob Magnuson, along with Mark Leventhal. Uh, the three of us did quite a bit of work together. Mark and I scored a picture called Valley Girl. Yeah. In the early it was like the first film I scored and Mark Martha Coolidge who directed that um and directed Real also, Genius. Also directed Real Genius. And yeah. so you asked about that, I'll get to that in a minute. But okay. so anyway, we were we were doing Bone Symphony and I had um a publisher at that point who directed us to twentieth and we we actually wrote nine songs for that picture and the only one that made it in was this one that was featured, you know, one foot in front of the other. Yeah. And the strange story about, uh, you know, I mean, that really, that was a, a song that Mark Leventhal and I wrote together. And uh, the strange thing is now that song is in two television shows. Uh, it's been in Family Guy and New Girl, as well as <laughs> the movie Ted 2. Right. <laughs> so, it, so it's been, you know, for something that we really didn't have any particular expectations for, except it was in this sort of fun project, Revenge of the Nerds, and it really kind of blew up, as did Valley Girl, and Valley Girl became this sort of cult thing. I might as well cover the real genius thing 
we were friends, Martha and I had done, I, we had done uh, a picture before Valley Girl called City Girl, mm. and Mark was involved with that as well, and that was produced by Peter Bogdanovich, uh, and there are stories around that, but I won't continue speaking about them because Ooh. they aren't terribly complimentary of, oh. of Peter. I mean, okay. it was, a, everybody's got financial horror stories in the business, and suffice it to say that that didn't go quite as filled. But um, at any rate, so Martha and I had this ongoing work relationship, and then Real Genius came around, which was the first film that she had that was produced by Brian Grazer. And so I was asked to come in along with other composers, and there were a bunch of people in the room and uh, one of them was Brian Grazer, but they didn't introduce me to him. They, they, that's not, those weren't the ground rules. Mm-hmm. So I played some of my stuff, and I don't remember, but I think it was on like a cassette recorder. I mean, it was like one of those really stupid meetings where I should never have played stuff on a cassette recorder, but I brought it in, and that was the only playback system there was. So Yeah, yeah. Long story short, I was represented by the same guy that Tommy Newman was represented by. On the way out of the thing, it looked like I had it, and then I got a call. Yeah, you, you know, you you've got it. You're going to score it. And then I got another call the next day from somebody at Paramount. Oh, I'm so sorry, but you know, uh, Sam Schwartz, apparently the agent, my quote unquote agent at the time, who said he would have me a deal in a week, was called by the producer Brian and said, well, you know, we're also looking at this guy, Thomas Newman, and, and uh, you know, and he said, well, I represent both Thomas Newman and Scott Wilkin. And so Brian asked, well, who would you prefer? Oh. I've, never, I've never documented this, but this is true, uh, according to the woman at Paramount who told me the story. So Brian just asked Sam Schwartz, well, if, if you could uh, – choose, who would you pick? And he would say, well, I picked Thomas. So Tommy got the gig, and they called me, and they were very upset, and they said, well, we, I know you, we told you that you, you got it, but we got to back out. And uh, I was not uh, aware of, of Tommy at that point, but I became his, probably his biggest fan, or one of them, because um he did a great job on this, but then he did American Beauty, and he did a mm-hmm. you know a succession of brilliant films. Oh yeah, I, I think he's a huge talent. Yeah, well, anyway, that whole Newman so, family—it's like a dynasty yeah, oh, of film soundtracks. Yeah, yeah, I mean, unbelievable between you know Alfred Newman and Randy and the yeah. whole—you're right, the whole family. Yeah, there's a million of them. Yeah, brilliant, really. Yeah, yeah. and there are other ones too, David. Yeah. Yeah. But suffice it to say, had I done that movie, I wouldn't been able wouldn't have been able to do the music director of Charlie Sexton tour, and we went on New Year's, MTV New Year's Eve, and we were yeah. on television in four different countries and went around the world, and nice. you know, so one thing led to something else, and yeah, you know, that's just how life is. Um, 
Well, so, okay, you know, so let me stop you because everything you're, you've said things, and I have like 20 questions now to relate back, to relate back to everything you just said. First and foremost, I have, I, I love Charlie Sexton, and I want to ask you more questions about him in a minute. But when you talked about, did you write one foot in front of the other specifically for Revenge of the Nerds? It sounds like they yeah. came to you maybe with the concept of doing the entire soundtrack, and you wrote nine songs for the movie, but they ended up just picking one. Is that right? That's correct. There's a, a producer named Peter McGregor Scott with whom we were uh, dealing. He was like a line producer on that film. He's gone on to do a lot of stuff. Anyway, Peter had a, a few scenes. One of them was the main title sequence, and I, I looked at what they had, and they said they wanted something like real sort of teeny bopper type thing, mm -hmm. and we didn't really do that kind of thing, but I was good friends with these guys called the Rubidoux, and sure. I just, yeah. they call them, and and uh, they did, and they ended up using one of the Rubidoux songs for the main yeah. title. This one uh, sort of show, you know, set piece where they're, you know, redoing the dormitory, they, uh, that was the first thing that they presented to us and we went in and we got to, you know, go into a great studio with the producer that I knew well and anyway, that was right. the, okay. that was, the, so the film was done one, and they, okay. That was the, the big uh, yeah, I mean, we recorded a bunch of things, but that was the one that they ended up uh, using, okay. which is, you know, which is how it goes lots of times. I mean, sure. we, we were happy to be included in the uh, conversation, as it were. Yeah. One thing I find interesting about uh, Revenge of the Nerds and, you know, a lot of movies at that period, um, selling a soundtrack, compiling a soundtrack was a thing, but actually selling it and putting it out and, getting hits off of it was still kind of in, a, in its infancy at that point. Yeah. I don't know yeah. that Revenge of the Nerds, I, maybe it came out on vinyl. Um, it, I don't think it ever was on CD. And if it is, if it was, it's hard to find now. No, so it's kind of a shame I, that you were a part of this cult movie that is still played all the time today and has memorable songs from it, but you don't get the benefit financially from sales of a movie soundtrack <laughs> album. Right. Well, we don't get we don't get mechanicals because no, you're right. It was never made into a into a soundtrack per se that I'm aware of. However, it airs yeah. all over the place, and and 
you know, I get a, a quarter of the, uh, you know, radio uh, PRO revenues. So, Good. well, you know, my co-writer Mark gets a quarter and the publishers get the other 50%. You know, in, in films, that's frequently the case of writers don't sure. participate in the publishing. But, uh, I mean, at this point, considering it's been in two feature films and featured on two TV shows and all of these are, you know, running all over the world, it's not going to, you know, completely, you know, allow me to uh, retire in style, <laughs> hardly. Uh, but, it, but it's something, you know. I mean, it's, really? it's not a... Yeah, I mean, it, it is, um, for 25% of something, it, it is definitely, uh, well, I, I also sang lead on it, so I get yeah. different actors field performances, too. Oh, nice. Great. Now, okay, I'll just flat out ask, if you want me to cut this out, I will, and I don't mean to sound insensitive. Are you, I mean, how much do you make on a on just having a song in a popular movie like that? Well, I, If you, if you, you don't know, want to if, say, you don't have to. I, I, I'm not trying to be coy, but it's it's really first of all on a on a um, any kind of movie from for anybody it it's a completely unpredictable sliding scale for yeah. a lot of reasons. One of which is the way that performing rights organizations PROs uh, calculate international revenues is wildly uneven. Uh, you never know if people are counting it correctly or not. There's no way you can know. Even even as far as the cue sheets for things that you should be paid for, it's it. I mean, I, again, I'm not trying to evade the question. It okay. is. It, it can be, um, uh, you know, just a a few thousand dollars a year. It it can be more than that. It can be a few hundred. It depends on the song and the movie. You know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I um I was curious about that because you know, I I think I may have mentioned I have a mild obsession with soundtracks, especially from the movies that I grew up on. And so a lot of the guests I bring on on here are people who had songs on soundtracks from movies that I grew up on and some of them um, you know, really benefit and some of them don't. And I and I it's it's really it seems like a crapshoot. I had um I don't know if you even know who this is. His name's Robert Tepper. And he was a singer-songwriter, kind of a harder rock one in the mid-'80s. He has a song called No Easy Way Out on the Rocky IV soundtrack. And we all, you know, the Rocky movies, there's a Rocky movie on somewhere right now. You know what I mean? Oh, it's constant. Yeah. And yet, it didn't. I didn't get the impression from him that it's a, it's a nice little thing. It's kind of what you were saying. He gets some money here and there. But it's not all the time, and yet that's a that's a soundtrack that still sells and all that kind of stuff. So, you're right. I never know whether, you know, people's deals are worked in a way where they get to benefit, you know, nicely or not so nicely. I never know. That's why. Well, I some, sometimes it it has to do with, you know, how well you're represented and when you when you sign a deal, if you get a deal. I mean, sometimes there is stuff that goes on that uh, most songwriters would probably agree isn't fair to the writers, but. Um, we we were pretty lucky. I mean, I think one foot in front of the other did well uh, in terms of my being able to hang on to. I mean, and I was a union singer, so as far as the vocal is concerned, I'm I'm waiting 
at the moment to see what uh, Ted too, because I didn't for some reason I wasn't included on the cast list, so that had to be corrected. And now I'm gonna because Ted two began out, um, airing in December of 2015, and I still yeah. haven't been paid uh, as a singer. So there's they're correcting that finally. Oh. No, I, I mean you're, you're asking really you're asking about stuff that I mean I don't know most of your listeners probably could give a hoot. But, um, yeah, I had one song on the soundtrack that did fairly well, um, and it's called In Deep. It's from the Beverly Hills Cop 2 soundtrack. Charlie Sexton and I wrote that oh, together. Oh, that's right. That's another one yeah. of my favorite soundtracks. I knew 
Charlie was being A&R'd by a guy named Michael Goldstone, who I also knew and was working with on a few other things. And somehow one led to, one thing led to the next, and I got to be, um, I played keyboards on a few cuts uh, on that record. Uh, okay. Um, for, for Keith and Charlie. went well and that led to they're asking me to be the musical director for the tour which was really complicated because a lot of what Keith did when he made the record was uh, with drum machines and mm-hmm. um, you know programmed stuff and I had to somehow recreate what he did um, yeah. and that was for the tour it was, uh, we went on MTV New Year's Eve with uh, a drum machine and, and uh, that was triggering the click in the drummer's headphones mm-hmm. and this had never been done before and mm-hmm. we were all told we were out of our tree to be trying this on live national television with 14 million people <laughs> listening mm-hmm. and if I had thought about it closely, they, I might have been convinced that they were right, that we were out of our trees. But it worked. Charlie is somebody, he's come up on here before, and he's somebody that I feel his career was mismanaged a little bit out of the gate. And I'll give you my theory, and you can tell me if you think I'm right, or maybe you can tell me to bug off or whatever. I just remember, I was a kid. I was, I mean, in 87, or I think that's around when the first album came out. I would have only been about, yeah, I would have been 14. And I just remember seeing um, a lot of... uh, reports on MTV about him and this new gunslinger. He's like 18 years old. He's an amazing guitarist. Yeah, he was 17. Yeah, 17. 1985. He was signed when he was 16. Uh, And he had learned at the feet of Stevie Ray Vaughan because his parents took him to the Continental Club all the time. And he basically was, he learned to play by watching Stevie Ray. And he became one of the best guitarists I've ever heard. I just... I just saw Bob Dylan uh, at the Shrine Auditorium here in L.A. Uh, last fall, about a year ago or so, and Charlie was, uh, as he's been for years, yeah. his, his principal guitarist, 
And I, I mean, he's still just incredible. His he's taste incredible. And, mm-hmm. He's really a very gifted singer too, and that unfortunately isn't being used anymore. I guess I don't know about whether he was mismanaged or not, but I think it, it was it was a very uh, tough thing for somebody who was 17 to come out and suddenly have a top 15 record. Yeah. And be touring the world, and and I mean we have stories that I could tell you about stuff on that tour. Mm. That were I mean he he was um, in Japan bigger than Prince when we toured there. Oh, he was really he was, selling, he was selling records through the roof in Japan. So we played these much larger halls than we did in in the states, and uh, were chased down parking lot ramps into elevators hmm. by screaming teenage girls. It was, I mean, we really were. It was like something out of a hard day's night in yeah. Japan. For us. Wow. And I don't know, but it, I think it was hard for, would have been hard for anybody to uh, to deal with coming up uh, and the kinds of pressures that are exerted by record companies that say, oh, you did really well in this first one. Let's see now what you're going to do. And right. then I, I was recruited to make this record with Harold by Michael Goldstone, the same guy who introduced me to Charlie. Mm-hmm. And uh, for whatever reason, it I, I kind of lost track of him for a few years. Oh. But but he's, uh, I, I still think, um, extremely gracious human being. I mean, he always right. was wonderful to me and... And we had a lot of fun Good. doing I tried to get him on the show, and I, I never heard. But I just always felt like maybe the 80s wasn't the best time for a young guitarist like him to, because that first album of his, as much as I like it, I've, I have this, people have heard me mention this before. Um, I feel like it's almost like um, human beings did not play on that first album of his. Because it's and I'm a big Keith Forsey fan. I love his style uh-huh. and everything. That, I love Keith Forsey. But that first, if you're selling us a young guitarist who's the new innovative gunslinger, that album to me sounds like drum machines and synthesizers, all of which is great. I like that. That's fine. It's just not yeah. doing the story you're telling about Charlie Sexton any favors. You know what I'm you saying? You know, I have. I've never thought about that, but I think you have a point. I mean, what Keith was doing was what Keith does. I mean, at the time, anyway, and that's, that's, um, you know, create uh, songs using the tools that he's extremely apt at at using and had been since Flashdance. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think what he did in, you know, putting Charlie on top of that, I, I... whether he made adequate use of Charlie's guitar mm-hmm. talents, I, I couldn't. Right. Yeah, I just feel like Charlie, the poor guy, it got kind of buried, and um, maybe the first album didn't showcase who he truly was. And now, did you have anything to do with him going on the Glass Spider tour with David Bowie after that? Oh no, I was I was uh, kind of out of the picture by that point. Okay. Um, but he's so good that yeah, it, it makes perfect sense that that he would do something like that. Okay. Okay. Well, man, this is. I think this is fascinating. 
Hey gang, I just wanted to break in here for a middle section before we get to the other half of the conversation. Uh, first of all, this song you're listening to right here is called Dome of the Dome of the Spears. Is that an 80s name or what? I love this song and uh, I hope you guys will too. So let's get into the shares. We've had a really good few weeks. Um, here's some of the people I want to give shout outs to. Jay Sabluski, as always. Joe Roiland with Sit and Spin. Carrie Carlson, she shares almost every episode. Sonny Pooney and Growing Up Rock Podcast. Hub Rigel, Anthony Porter of Three Chord Money. The Podfather, Ken Mills. Suburban Underground, the guys that I was on their show a few months ago. We shared it with you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. You should subscribe if you want to hear an hour's worth of great alternative rock every week. Uh, Thomas Ferranti, Pedro Vidal, Larry Wiesman. Hope I said that right. David Paul Carver, uh, The Curious World Podcast with my buddy Vandal, Jason Simons and Gregory Ray. So thank you everybody for sharing and getting the word out there. You know, last week, oh, and Stephen Thompson, obviously, with last week's guest, he shared it. He's, he loved it. I think he was really glad that to talk about something other than Metallica and Guns N' Roses and the alternative half of his career. So he went, got behind it. He's going to post it on his website and he wanted like a hard copy and everything. We've had a really good few months. Every episode keeps kind of getting a little bit better and a little bit better, thanks to all of you. The one, the one episode that didn't was the trans, Trash Can Sinatras. That's been our lowest one lately, um, which I kind of understand. As much as I would love everyone to love that band as much as I do, I didn't think that interview was very good at all. Plus, it got messed up, so it sounded kind of weird. Um, so anyway skip the interview and just go listen to the trash can Sinatras if you please they are one of the best bands ever also I was going to mention last week remember I said that uh, save rock and metal on Twitter I don't know who they are but they sent this tweet out very kindly saying that like we were one of the best music podcasts on the planet they put out a top five music podcast list this week they had us at number four I could not believe that and th- and this is they're a rock and metal thing. So the other people on there were like Decibel Geek and Rich Lef- Mitch Lafon and stuff like that. So I'm just so humbled by all of you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope we put out a really quality product that you enjoy every week. I want to get into some requests. Art Ellis, who by the way won one of those Alex Call CDs, he recommended the Donnas, which is a great idea. I've wondered where they went as well. I think that's a good one. Anson Holmes uh, requested Jello Biafra. That would be a really interesting conversation. I would love to talk to Jello from the Dead Kennedys. Uh, Tom Nuremberg, he requested The Long Winters. I like The Long Winters. That's a really interesting idea. Although uh, 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 Tom requested episode is coming up in a few weeks. So Tom kind of needs to move to the back of the line a little bit. But I do like that idea and I'll look into it. BJ Cramp of the Rock and Roll podcast. He requested Josie Cotton, which is a great idea. Um, but he too has a requested episode coming up the day after Christmas. So he kind of needs to move to the back of the line too a little bit. But I like both those ideas. I'll I'll see what I can do. And then Ty Ray of the Eats and Beats podcast. That's a lot of fun, by the way. They cover like uh, sort of cultural, cult, uh, pop culture oddities, largely from the 80s. So like 
actresses that were really hot back in the day or, you know, people who were in movies that we loved or bands that were good. There's a lot of interesting uh, pop culture stuff. In fact, Ty and I are talking about doing something at some point. He recommended a band called Shooting Star, which I didn't know that much about. But when he told me all about them, I thought this makes a lot of sense. That'd be a really good story. Um, I'm going to tell you about a couple of rejections I got lately. So, uh, I don't know if you remember the guy, Jim, uh, sorry, John Astley. So back in the day, he was known primarily as a producer. He worked with the who and other bands, but in the late eighties, he had this strange kind of out of nowhere hit with a song called Jane's getting serious. It's a very weird song. Um, in fact, I bought his CD at the Nashville rock and pod expo by one of the vendors there. And I was listening to it thinking, where'd this guy go? Let's talk to him. So I tried to track him down a couple of times and he finally emailed back and said, I really don't do that kind of thing. And so John Astley will not be on the show. And then the other one is Naked Eyes. I am so bummed. I have been trying to get Pete from Naked Eyes on here for a couple of years. And I emailed them at the beginning of October and whoever manages the email, the, the webpage or whatever replied to my email saying, Pete's on vacation till the end of the month, check back then and we'll set something up. So I emailed back on like October 28th, 29th or something like that saying, Hey, I'm, I'm here, you know, when Pete ready to talk, let's get with Pete. And I got this email kind of a, a little curt saying like, Hey, I said the end of the month. I'm thinking, well, it's almost basically the end of the month, but okay. So I wait a week or so. I email back. I don't hear anything. I wait again, try again. I still don't hear anything. I finally got a response, uh, this last week. And the guy was like, oh, you know, he's, I think he's on vacation now with his family through the end of the year. Maybe we can do this sometime when he has something to promote. And I kind of hate it when people say that because, yes, I'm open to promoting your thing on here. That is for sure. However, I don't, I want them to be mentally prepared that that's not why I want to talk to you. That's not all we're going to talk about. We're going to go deep on your career and you can promote whatever thing by all means that you're working on. So I don't know. Hopefully down the line, I'm going to bug him again in a few months uh, and see what happens. But I'm really bummed out. I wanted to talk to Naked Eyes. Uh, let's get into some reviews. All right. So John Ravensbottom. Is that the best last name you've ever heard? Ravensbottom? <laughs> he gave five stars. Says an absolute joy, like catching up with old friends. Um, what a great podcast. John Lamoureux's enthusiasm drives these fascinating chats. He's an engaging host. Thank you. I was delighted to stumble upon it. The first listens were Nick Van Eed, Walter Egan, Robert Tepper, and Harry Wayne Casey. I liked all of those. Harry Wayne, not as much, but the other ones were good. These enlightening conversations drove me to Amazon to buy more recent work by these artists. Yes, that's what I love. I actually already had all the Cutting Crew albums. Nick is an excellent vocalist and a gifted writer. It was my hope that there was a live Cutting Crew album out there that led me to this podcast. I am grateful for the show and for the additional music it has led me to discover by these wonderful artists. I look forward to exploring back episodes and hearing what is yet to come. Highly recommended. Thank you, John. And that's something I just wanted to remind everybody, if you're fairly new to the podcast, please go back into the archives and see if there's other bands out there that we've touched on that you like. Um, I do think my style, my, my approach or my, 
confidence has gotten better over the years, but I think the content has remained solid throughout. So even go back to the early episodes, there's great stuff in there. All right, another review by Glenwood95. Interesting. When I was in college at BYU in 1995, I lived in an apartment complex called the Glenwood. So I wonder if I know who this person is. Uh, I don't really keep in close contact with anyone from that era, at least not close enough where I think they listen to this podcast. Maybe I'm way overthinking this. Anyway, John really knows his stuff. Five stars. Thank you. I think a lot of the people he interviews are surprised how much he knows about their often obscure careers. With his near fanboy enthusiasm, there it is again, he is able to build on that knowledge and ask questions that get the artist to really tell his or her story. I don't always know much about the person in question, as a lot of the subjects were just before my time, but it is interesting nonetheless to hear of the struggle, the success, and the failures. Well done. Thank you, Glenwood95. And that is my hope that um, the people, even if an episode comes up like this one where you probably don't know who the person is, there's still some really interesting content and a really valuable story in there to be heard. Uh, then lastly, Steve Poshman, I just mentioned him. He is uh, one of the hosts of Suburban Underground, the award-winning Suburban Underground. Uh, never miss it. Five stars. I look forward to John's Hustle podcast every Tuesday. Typically, the artists he interviews are ones I am curious about, but even if it is someone I've never heard of or someone who put out music I didn't care for, I'm still interested in hearing the person's story. Good, that's what I just said. John has a friendly demeanor and is able to get the best out of the interview subject. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. And thanks, everybody, for writing reviews. And please go in there and leave us more. I don't care if they're good or bad. In fact, I'll read the bad ones, as you know. So uh, please do that for us. Also, I wanted to fill you guys in on the shirts. I have been saying for a few weeks to go uh, into Amazon and just type in Hustle Podcast merch or shirts. I tried that the other day, and the only thing that came up was the long-sleeve shirt option. I don't know why that is. My buddy Ryan is kind of manning this shirt page on Amazon for us anyway, and I asked him about it. He said it had something to do with the holidays. I'm not exactly sure. So if you don't want the long sleeve option, which is $29.99, uh, you'll have to go to the link that I posted on Facebook to, to order the regular t-shirt, the gray or the black. Also, I want to mention we bought a bunch of, uh, we bought three shirts for our kids, little ones, and they all looked a little small. Uh, so maybe, and I haven't, all the pictures you guys have sent, they all look great. Maybe it's just the kids' sizes, but keep in mind there's a possibility, I guess, that these things could run a little small. And lastly, I want to run something by you guys. So over Thanksgiving, I went to uh, stay with my parents. My family drove to southern Utah. They live in St. George, Utah, which is down in the southwest corner. And uh, it's about 100 miles from Vegas. And so the Saturday after Thanksgiving, I drove down to Vegas and I had dinner with former guest Joe Esposito, who sang You're the Best Around, remember that song from Karate Kid, and Randy Hall, who was in Camp Buy Me Love and was performing at the school dance during the African Anteater Ritual. Those guys are musical partners down in Vegas. And they perform together as a group called Cool Change. And they just perform in like clubs or parties or corporate events or whatever and they sing you know hits from the from every era well i've had this idea for a while that i really want to put on a movie soundtrack concert probably in vegas where like five or six people come up and they sing 
all their their soundtrack hits. So like Randy could get up and sing uh, all night that he didn't camp by me love. Joe could get up and sing you're the best around and lady, lady, lady from, uh, flash dance. And he wrote hearts on fire from Rocky four, bring that on. Then Robert, Robert Tepper comes on. Tim Capello comes on. Gerard McMahon comes on. Stan Bush comes on, whatever. I've wanted to do this for a long time. And so I pitched them on the idea and it's funny. They don't really see their careers as being, you know, that they're a couple of sort of pop culture icons. I think they see themselves as just working musicians, but that's not how I see them. And so I'd love to ha- put on like a one night concert in Vegas. People come together and we get to hear from all these people, but I haven't the slightest clue how to do something like that. So Joe is actually being a part. He was interviewed, being interviewed for this 80s soundtrack documentary, I guess that's coming out. So he asked the guy who was funding that documentary. And that guy said, you really just have to find investors. What's really interesting is just this past week, I saw that Robert Tepper and Stan Bush are doing this exact kind of concert in LA next year. So I know that the thing is out there. In fact, I'm a little bummed that someone kind of stole my idea or at least thought of it and knew what to do with it. I don't. So if anyone out there has any guidance or advice or whatever, I haven't a clue. I pr- it probably seems like I do because I interview people for this show, but this is it. I don't, I've never been in concert promotion. I don't know how any of that stuff works. So if anyone has any ideas, or if you want to tell me, John, that's a stupid idea, you'll go broke. Just let me know. I'm really curious what kind of guidance you can offer. Anyway, let's get back to Scott Wilk. Now, let's go back to the beginning with you for a little bit. I don't know where you're from, but I know that Scott Wilk and the Walls were this, uh, back in 1980, this kind of new wave, power pop, garage rock thing that was very popular at the time. And um, where did you come from and how did that band come together and then what happened i mean you put out one album that's uh, frankly also really hard to find today oh john this is really going back um <laughs> okay well i'm from chicago okay and uh, i was um writing songs and recording them and i i formed this band called the walls and we we ended up well i don't know where to sort of take this but I guess the best way to frame it is to say I wrote a bunch of songs. I came out to Los Angeles, uh, another project, and met with a publisher and and a few record people and ended up bringing the band out here and we did showcases and we ended up six months after I moved here signing with Warner Brothers, which was maybe a bad turn of events because had I any idea that it was as hard to succeed in this business um, as it is, I probably would have not taken it as, uh, you know, in the way that I did, which was, oh, well, this is, you know, that's how it happens. You come out, you get signed, and you make a record. Anyway, but I, I was um, I was very lucky to, to have uh, a really positive experience initially with that record and everything got to make it but uh, the uh, I mean I was told by people at Warner's that this was going to be suspicion the song that we didn't we didn't give to Pat Benatar who wanted it for her first record I mean 
they wouldn't let us give suspicion away. So, but Michael said, I, I swear, Michael, I swear that this record will be a top 20 record. So, as fate would have it, and everybody has a horror story, as I think it's. But the week that Scott Wilk and the Walls was released uh, was the week of one of the first payola scandals. And so, all of the independent promotion men who worked for Warner Brothers were fired. Uh, the week my record was released, and and they had nothing in place for us to replace um, all of those guys, uh, and they were mostly guys, if not all. And so it was kind of one of those things where it barely cracked. I mean, it, it was astonishingly. It, it was on all of the adult-oriented rock stations in Chicago and a few other places, and it's so reasonably well in a few places but it was nothing like it might have been had it been adequately yeah. promoted okay. out of nowhere you know yeah i um, noticed um i was googling i noticed there was a it looks like a professionally made somewhat for that time period anyway video for the song suspicion oh you know, that's very that, funny yeah did that's that ever get played on mtv no that was before mtv Okay, I thought that, so. that was one of those promotional, like, no, it was just a, a couple of friends of mine, and we, there was a, um, like an ad agency or something above, in the floor above the recording studio where we did a lot of work, and it had curvy hallways and groovy sort of glass uh, panels and stuff, and uh, we ended up shooting that there, and it was really never supposed to see the light of day, because, mm -hmm. I mean... It was like a, it was shot in you know, like one afternoon, I think, and we had, it was pretty quick and dirty. But yeah, I mean, it, it uh, you can still find it, and my my son used to have good fun showing it to people on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. By the way, I was going to tell you, your sound, you, you don't sound as clear as you used to? Oh, I'm now moving, and I'm, I'm moving because I'm dying of thirst, and I have to go somewhere to... Joe Jackson, there were sure. there were a few other people. Um, 
I, I think, uh, you know, and with benefit of hindsight, you know, there, there may, there may have been, uh, an influence there that I wasn't cognizant of while we were doing it, but there was okay. absolutely no overt attempt to mimic or, uh, you know, copy the kinds of songs or the way that yeah. they sang or okay. anything. And you know, there was Trouser Press had won a review of the record that said, uh, made some criticism of the fact that I was wearing the kind of sunglasses that Steve Naive wore, uh, and the fact, the fact that it was Elvis's keyboard player. But they ended up the review saying, uh, never mind the gimmick, Wilk is okay. And I, yeah. I just sort of thought that was sort of damning with faint praise. Yeah. Yeah. But but it was uh I mean it's you mentioned Bone Symphony. Well, when I read some of the reviews and and saw that it could be be asserted yeah. that comparison uh I I I was a vocal student of a of a really great voice coach named Doug Susumago at that point. And we had been working together for a long time, and I just went to him and I said, I need to use more of my voice than this. And so I, I was, uh, and it almost turned out like, now you sound like Bowie, you know. Oh, okay. It's, it's yeah. like you can't win, you know. Yeah, that's uh, true. Okay. But I I did my best to uh, sound like me. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, You were young. Yeah. I uh, I just wondered if anyone ever mentioned it. In fact, I was just just now I'm looking at the the videos of suspicion on YouTube, and half the comments underneath uh, make some reference to Elvis Costello. But I'm curious. So tell me about the transition. You know, Scott Wilson, The Walls comes out. You feel like you've made a good record, and you're on a major label, and it kind of dies a death. And if, how does the guy from that album? And I don't mean that. I hope that didn't sound insensitive. I really like that album. But how does the guy from that band become the guy who's fronting Bone Symphony? And then how does that not take off either? Or maybe, you know, it sounds like both projects are sort of short-lived. Well, <laughs> as far as the, the transition out of Warner Brothers, um, I will say that there was a situation with my manager which uh, I don't know how much detail to go into. Suffice it to say, I was um, told, we were told, that uh, the record, the option for my second record was picked up. And then that manager at that time abused his privilege uh, and had, there was a conversation that had serious negative effects on my career, a phone conversation that was held when he was uh let's say impaired that resulted from my in my being dropped by Warner Brothers. Uh, I was really too naive to really understand you know what the what manager had been. It was really a mess. Long story short, we made a record uh we made a whole bunch of demos to try to save the signing to Warner Brothers and we 
were able to come back, I was able to get a moment with uh, Warner Brothers and our brass to play them the demos we made. But by then the die was cast. You know, you end up picking up the pieces and moving on. Uh-huh. That bunch of demos that we were using to try to rescue the deal got lost for several years and then I found them and remastered them and they're now available on believe it or not on iTunes and Amazon and other places um, Great. Scott Wilk on the Walls The Lost Sessions it's called that's what that is okay I saw that yeah. I didn't know what it was eight or nine demos um, that uh, we did. And unfortunately, the waters had been poisoned by that manager so badly that it was just, uh, you know, it was a lost cause. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I sort of went back to the well and made uh, changes in my approach and had new partners and then made Bill Symphony. And, you know, the fact that we were able to get into the, 20th Century Fox, uh, yeah, you know, sort of through the door and be able to make stuff for Revenge of the Nerds, and the fact that we got a you know a, a deal on Capital and made the EP we did. Uh, you asked about that. Well, the reason why that didn't go was because the A and R man who signed us to Capital moved to another label just before the record came out. Oh, you know, it's one yeah. of those. So um, I hear these stories like a lot the on MCA here. Story, sure, of course you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, like the MCA story before with Harold, they were sort of delivered a record that they kind of said, huh? Yeah. You know, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yeah. Who were you guys? Yeah. What were you? What's this? Yeah, mm-hmm. I got it. Okay. So, so you, I mean, you come from Chicago to L.A. to make it as a professional musician, and you've had two close calls. Um, how are you feeling? And then it sounds like shortly after uh, Bone Symphony is when Charlie Sexton starts happening, and it, and I think probably from there you become more of like a behind-the-scenes guy. Um, and I want to talk about all the scoring and the production music that you do now, but 
even though you're the one making that music, you're still writing for, you know, for a, a film or something. So people aren't, look, you're not the front man of a band anymore. How did that feel to make that transition in your life? Was that hard? Was it okay because you were seeing some success and that beat any desire to be in front, the front man of a rock band? How were you feeling during these transitions? Well, that's a very good question. I think the really, the real story here is I have always loved film. I mean, uh, always. I was a yeah. movie nerd. Um, my, my mom used to, when I was a kid, used to like, you know, say, why are you watching bumphead television? When I was, you know, watching the treasure of the Sierra Madre or, or it wasn't bumphead television. I was saying this was like, wonderful films and I was checking I was paying very careful attention to how music was used in film so I'd always kind of wanted to score movies um, and I have always I had always thought well you know you you can't be you know the lead singer of a rock band unless you're really really incredible uh, for uh, you know like your Bruce Springsteen and your Elvis Costello or something uh, forever you just you you probably should have a plan b so as far as the emotional side of it i mean i i was happy as a clam um e even though the people in one of the guys in bone sympathy accused me of you know wanting to become jerry goldsmith well i really didn't want to be jerry goldsmith i thought it was you know <clears throat> an incredibly cool thing to do to find what kind of emotional parentheses worked under yeah. a scene in film and uh, a challenge that uh, I mean there are, there's challenges in writing songs you're, when you're the star of the scene when the, the story is the star and you have, to, you have to work in support of story story is king finding a way to help tell that story and not get in the way of it, but aid it and abet it, um, that, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. And so I was happy to make that transition, and I sort of did before even Bone Symphony. I mean, Mark Leventhal and I scored Valley Girl before Bone Symphony. We, we were working together before that, so and then we sort of blended in with Jakob Magnuson forming that group. So then it sounds like uh, scoring films and everything, that becomes maybe a driving, a more interesting pursuit than fronting the rock band. What were some of the first things that you did? Because now I'm looking at your website and you're doing a lot of like corporate videos and films. In fact, you did one with Cisco. I used to work for Cisco, actually. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. About actually, I've been, working, I've been working with a, a Bay Area company who does a lot of these high-end uh, corporate events. I've been working with uh, with Cisco and, and and them for seven years running now. Wow. Doing stuff. Um, and we've been doing a lot of, you know, fairly large-scale projects in the last okay. three years. We've been in um, the MGM Grand Arena, 18,000 people packed in there. That's it's right. A, it's a bigger audience than I ever performed for this yeah. this last last August and I was playing piano in the middle of that. That was quite fun. Good. So do you um you live in LA? Um mm -hmm. 
And this is your career, is scoring films of all sizes, it sounds like. I, I saw that you did an independent. You sent me the link to your SoundCloud play, page, yeah. which, if it's okay with you, I'll put it in the show notes to this episode, because I think it's interesting for people to hear all the different kinds of genres that you're very proficient yeah. in. Would you say, I mean, are you happy with how your career turned out? I mean, it sounds like you're in a really good place. And well, you can probably pay your ways, bills better than you yeah. would have otherwise. Well, in, in a lot of ways, I, I am very, very lucky to uh, have been able to do what I love for all these years and make a living, even if it hasn't been a, a you know, king's ransom. And, and there, mm-hmm. there are lean times. I mean, and when you're self-employed, yeah. you know, there's health insurance. I mean, it's, there's all kinds of challenges. <clears throat> but somehow, more often than not, uh, it, it's worked. I, yeah. I'm just really lucky to have this publisher now, Black Toast Music is the name of the publisher, and yeah. uh, they represent a kind of a catalog of, of production music, but it's it's all um, electronica. It's all the stuff that um, I most enjoy doing, really. I mean, at this okay. point, um, I, I studied electronic music at Oberlin when I was you know, starting in, uh, believe it or not, 1970 was when I started going to Oberlin and uh, left there after three years, but got to uh, yeah. learn on these incredible systems, Moog. So, you know, yeah, so I've always been working with electronics. I just, and now I'm doing it with a much smaller yeah. desk full of stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, one thing I forgot to ask you that I really was curious about, in either of your bands, the, the Scott Wilk and the Walls or Bone Symphony, were you ever, did you ever go out on tour? Did you did you open for whoever, the Pesh Mode yeah, we, or something like that? Well, I mean, we opened, yeah, we opened for the Pretenders once. Oh, nice. At Southern Illinois University. Okay. Um, that was peculiar because their, uh, the Pretenders sound guy uh, and our sound guy or, or didn't get along or something, so oh. he was he kind of messed with our board a little bit before we went. Oh shoot! <laughs> but it it was still an honor to. I mean, I, I was a huge Chrissy Hine fan. Yeah. And James Honeyman Scott. So yeah, I mean, getting to open for them was a kick. That's great. You being a member of two sort of more cultish bands, did you ever have that experience of hearing one of your songs on the radio? Oh, of course. Did you really? Because I, oh, I sure. don't, couldn't remember if One Foot in Front of the Other was ever released as a single. I know Suspicion and I think even Radioactive were yeah. singles. I yeah. don't know if they were, you know, how well they did or if they were played often enough that you got to hear them.
Radioactive, and um, several of the songs from that first record. I mean, at that point, I was sort of booming, moving back and forth between Chicago and Los Angeles. And, and uh, as I mentioned, we were on all of the adult-oriented rock stations, Okay. Uh, all the AORs in Chicago. So, I mean, I, at one point, I would punch the buttons on my radio, and it was on all three stations. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't Great. believe my ears. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know for sure. And that happened, yeah. you know, a couple of times. And, you know, the record store in Chicago, the main, the big deal one, had a big display in, in the uh, in the front window. Right? Cool. So there were, you know, there were places. I mean, I'm, I don't know how even that happened. It may have been that... In Chicago, the promotion man had sort of been laying for this and had, uh-huh. or the Warner Brothers guys had done a good job in preparing, and then they were cat. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's great. But, okay, yeah, good. It was fun. Did yeah, you ever get to fun. play with or meet any of your heroes? I don't even know who was who you would have been considering your influencers back in the day, but other than Chrissy Hine, I mean, did you ever get to rub shoulders with anyone? I mean, you've been working, it sounds like, even in, you know, in movies and in film. Peter Bogdanovich, did you ever get to meet any cool people or have any fun stories? I got to rub shoulders with a bunch of people, but, you know, out here, it's not a, it's not a sort of a big deal to... Yeah, that's true. ...to do that. I mean, there were, okay. there were times when um, I would have loved to spend, you know, more time than just hi, hello with people, but, you know, I mean... There were, there were a lot of points where I would have loved to have been able to hang out with Good. my heroes more. But yeah, you know, all right, you get what you get. So to, okay, so uh, in closing, I usually ask most of my guests pretty much the same two questions. I want to know if you have any regrets, if there's anything, any decisions. I know you talk about bad managers and stuff like that, but if there was any, if there was a decision you ever made that, in retrospect caused you cost something you know but Mm. if not that's okay but then the other one is i just want to hear your tastiest memory when you are sitting back in your car or in your house and you think remember that time when i got to do that i still can't believe that happened to me what is that they're both good questions um i i think as far as the second question goes Getting to be on MTV New Year's Eve in front yeah. of all those people and playing live for 40 minutes, it was really one of those moments um, that I, I look back on and I say, I actually did that? There's a zillion moments where if I actually thought about it, I could spiel them off. But as far as regrets go, I don't have any regrets. I don't I don't think it's uh, useful to really? to live with a situation where you're, you know, you're looking backward because if you keep looking backward, you're very likely to drive to a tree. Mm-hmm. You know, it really, yeah. it behooves one to try to focus on what's next and not what's behind you. Yeah. Um, so I don't have any regrets. I mean, I would have, sure. uh, you know, there are moments when I say, well, what if I had not tried to move out here? What if I had stayed in Chicago? Um, yeah, well, but that's done. It's it's yeah. not something one can, you know, do over. Yeah. So, 
Okay. I'm, uh, I really, I really don't. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm just incredibly lucky to still be able to make stuff like I did last night. That, that made me really happy. This electronic track mm-hmm. for for Vice and. Uh, yeah. You know the the picture you mentioned, this indie flick called The Mix. The Mix uh, just became available on iTunes and Amazon itself this last Tuesday. So um, yeah, I mean, and it's it's a kind of a dramedy. I I really thought it was really really well done. It looks like it was you know a ten million dollar film or something. Uh-huh. And it certainly wasn't even close to that. But the filmmakers did a great job, and I had a ball scoring it, and it was an electronic score. So I, you know, it was like perfect to me. Great, that's great. And really enjoyed that opportunity. Uh, the fact that I'm able to still get to score indie films—I mean, it's, it's that was just astonishing to me that I got that. Yeah, that's great. I would have no—I would have had no idea. I mean, I. Um, what ends up happening for me with the, in regards to this podcast is because I'm so into movie soundtracks, I'll hear that song and I'll think, I love this song and I love this movie. Who who did this one? What's this guy doing now? You know? And yeah. uh, to discover all the things that you've done has really just been fascinating. And what's even better is that I like all of it, you know? Oh, that's I really like kind of you, I like Scott Wilk in the Walls. I like Bone Symphony EP. I like all the stuff on your SoundCloud page. So, well, if you if you heard that, let me just interrupt you by saying because the yeah. first thing on there is the main title from the mix. I noticed. That's so. That's the film I was referring to. Yeah, we're gonna play a little bit of it right here so people can hear the sample. Oh, cool. Okay. And I'm really grateful that you told it to me because um, I've had I've been curious who you were for you know 33 years or whatever now. I love that song and I love that movie and I've heard it so many times and it brings me so much joy. I want to know what else there was and it all works. So thanks a lot for talking to me, Scott. Uh, thank you. I've had a ball and uh, you know all the best going forward. Let's stay yeah, in touch. Thank you. There you have it, Scott Wilk. 
I hope you guys find these as interesting as I do. I, I grew up on these movies. They're seminal to me. So getting some behind the scenes information is just fascinating. So thank you, Scott. And I hope it's okay. He sounded like he was getting sick or something while we were talking, but he said he was fine. I should probably just start stop worrying about it. This song right here is a Scott Wilkes in the Wall track called Danger Becomes Apparent, and it's really good. And I misspoke. That album, their one and only album, is actually... $2.99 new on Amazon on CD. So go check it out. I don't know why it's so cheap. The Bone Symphony stuff, that's only available on vinyl. That's much harder to find. I don't tell him I had to download it in order to play it on here, but it's really good if you can find it. Now, a uh, little teaser for next week. We're finally getting to some good R&B. Uh, he's a member of a band that on the pop charts, unfortunately, were really only a one-hit wonder. But they had a bunch of other s tracks on like the dance and R&B and funk charts throughout the 70s and 80s. Great band. I hope we can get more R&B on here. I hope you guys will listen to it. I hope you like that kind of thing like I do. But it's really good stuff. A huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich. Thank you, buddy. Guys... Yan had a death in his family this week. His uncle Mike passed away. And so even with that going on, he's still helping us out and putting together a great podcast. So give him a little bit of love if you can on Facebook or something. Just let him know you appreciate him because I sure do. Thank you, buddy, for everything. Give your family my best. You guys know how to find us. You can like our page on Facebook. Please do. You can uh, send me a message on there. You can email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We will be back next week with another episode. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you then.